0: Today's New York Public Library podcast inaugurates Books at Noon, the library's new series of free talks by acclaimed authors in the Schwarzman Building's Astor Hall at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, every Wednesday at noon through May 7th. Our first guest is political satirist P.J. O'Rourke. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Books at Newt. I I encourage you all to just move further in because the sounds, the acoustics here are not terrific. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm very excited about this program. I'm very excited to have P.J. O'Rourke, who's um, a wonderful writer, journalist, uh, a political satirist early in his career. He was with the Editor-in-Chief of the National Lampoon and then wrote as a political correspondent for The Atlantic and for Rolling Stone. Um, He has written 16 books, two of which are or have been on the number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And he is often a guest on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, He has written a wonderful new book called Baby Boom, and I am going to not get... The sort of subtitle of this, right? It,
1: it's, the, uh, it's the baby boom and how it got that way, and it wasn't my fault, and I'll never do it again. So <laughs> let's
0: pretty... um, let's sit down and talk about it. Yeah.
1: This All is right. a, a, an interesting venue, I've got to say. This is like just, it's just like one step above, sort of, a, sort of an elevated version of standing on a milk carton, ranting on the street, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> but in a nicer environment, yeah.
0: It's prettier. Than yeah, it is that. much prettier. So um, let's first talk about um, sort of the baby boom started as a rebellious uh, generation and became a really passive generation. And I'm wondering, not passive, but not, but sort of afraid, I would say. So I'm wondering if there are other generations that have the same kind of trajectory, or is the baby boom
1: no, unique. I, I think we are unique in, in, this one, in a couple of respects. Uh, for one thing, we, I mean, there were just tons and tons of us. I mean, there was the Depression, there was World War II, and then when the guys got home from the war, sex was invented, basically. I mean, nobody had a baby since, I don't know, Gatsby. And so all of a sudden, there are 75 million baby boomers. And the main thing that makes us different from other generations, it's just, it's a, you can put a number on it. I looked up what the greatest generation, the parents of the generation, uh, 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 what they, their family incomes, median family incomes, not average, because that can be skewed by top and bottom, but the median family income, right in the middle, was $10,000 a year more for the baby boom than it had been for the greatest generation. You want to know what the real difference between the baby boom and the greatest generation is? It's $10,000. And not only that, but if you look at the economic figures, while the baby boom is growing up, America's on a steady upward slope of economic growth uh, that starts after World War II and goes on virtually without a major blip until the Arab oil embargo. And that's the environment we come out of. It's growing, it's prosperous, it's anything can happen. We can do anything. Where our parents were going, they, they had the Depression, they had the World War II, we can do nothing, you know, you keep your head down. And so, so you get a whole different group of people. And then what we do when we find out, when we decide that we can do anything, we do. We do everything. Those of you who were around during the 60s may... Remember, maybe you don't remember, maybe you have a fuzzy memory of, 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 of all the things we did. But you name it, we did it. And what happened was we scared ourselves. Why did we become a cautious generation? Why did we become helicopter parents? We scared ourselves. We, we, we did everything, and it kind of turned out to be pretty frightening. And so you know, we were much cautious. The other thing is we're the generation that will never grow up. So unlike our parents, when we look into our kids' eyes, we know exactly what they're thinking. Our parents had no idea what we were thinking. We know exactly what we're we're thinking. So we turned into these helicopter parents, and Charles Krauthammer had a great thing about this. He said, our generation are the helicopter parents. Our parents' generation, the greatest generation, they were the drone parents. You know, much more distant and every now and then, whack, you know. But we, is, we, was, we hover over the kids. Do you every think moment.
0: this is a, an American thing? I mean, do we, was after the war, were there other countries like Japan or? Did, well, that, there
1: was a baby boom demographic phenomenon all over the world, but except for like Canada and Australia and New Zealand, most of these countries were destroyed. They were devastated. I mean, food rationing lasted until, didn't, it wasn't fully eliminated until 1954 in Great Britain. So their baby boom experience was not the, like, incredible self-confident, maybe too confident experience that Americans had. When I've talked to Canadians and people in New Zealand and Australia, they had a similar experience uh, of the baby boom. Europe, it's somewhat different because it was, the streets were full of rubble, you know.
0: What, um, when you say, because you talk about the narcissism of the baby boom generation um, and the, the sort of... The planet of me or the, I mean, as you say, you say that their own personal universe, but it was the personal universe made a kind of, for a kind of confidence that made it capable for change,
1: no? Or, you know, it's a funny thing about the baby boom. We are narcissistic. We are the generation of self. We are the me generation. And yet, it works in a funny sort of way, it works to make a more peaceful, more prosperous, if somewhat careless and messy and self-involved world th- th- that we live in. I mean, it's impossible to imagine the baby boom or any of the generations coming after the baby boom having a World War I or having a World War II, we may have a Crimea, but we're not going to have a World War I and World War II, let alone a World War Three, And the reason is it takes these massive conscripted armies to have that kind of huge world-shattering war, and we would all have a letter from our doctor about how we're allergic to camouflage. So it's just, it's just not <laughs> going to happen. You're not going to be able to mobilize that many people to do something that stupid. It's not that we're not stupid, but we have a scale. We've scaled it down. You know, quantitatively, we're less stupid. There's also kind of an Adam Smith thing going on. Adam Smith in the 18th century discovered what had basically been staring people in the face for a long time is that everybody, economically, everybody works for their own benefit, naturally. I mean, it's just, you know, this is human nature. And yet, when you put all those individual selfish impulses together, it does something beneficial for society in general. Up to a point, of course. You know, I mean, up, you know, up, up, up to and not necessarily including Citibank, you know, or, or, or Goldman Sachs. But I mean, at a basic level, all this individual selfishness leads to a general progress, and the individual narcissism and self-centeredness of the baby boom works something the same way. Taken one by one, we're a very self-centered generation, but the the result of this. Has been a much nicer, kinder, gentler. We're a we're a generation that wants to give the world a hug and a drug. You know, I mean, we we just you know we're not. Uh, uh, you know, there isn't the anger, there isn't the, the fanaticism that you saw in in, in in previous generations.
0: When you started writing the book, did you? think it was going to be more social commentary mixed with memoir? Or did you think you were going to do a memoir or a social commentary and then it began to blend and then it became a sort of love letter to a generation by the end? Well, no. Actually,
1: I started out, I wrote the book because this is the year. This 2014 is the year that the youngest members of the baby boom, the generation that was never going to get old, this is the year the youngest members turn 50. And we'd be sad about this if we weren't taking drugs to keep us from being sad. So I thought, well, this is the time to speak out. And I started out very skeptical, thinking of myself and my journey through the 60s and what an idiot I was. And I, I started out not liking my generation very well. And I gradually kind of like f- began to feel this affection for it. And one of the reasons that I think I feel an affection for the baby boom, and I think other baby boomers do, is that we, probably the last generation on the face of the earth, to have this perfect shared experience. Three channels on TV, two a.m. radio stations playing exactly the same songs. We all read the same books. It's remarkable how much our, our lives were like each other's, you know. Of course, obviously, there were people who were outliers, people who didn't benefit from the post-war prosperity. But I've been amazed when I talk to people, not only people who were poor or or, or people who were black or people who were Hispanic, but also people who were rich and who led a very different life than I did growing up middle class in Toledo, Ohio, how how much we all still had in common. And no generation will ever have that again because now it's all fractionalized. You know, and so I, yeah, I warmed to my subject as I was writing about it. I started out, and you can kind of see it in the book and then the memoir part, I never wanted to write a memoir because a memoir is how I am so different from you. I was running with scissors or whatever <laughs> you know, I was up to, you know my experience is so singular you know as to make you feel like interested sort of but like th- but humdrum, you know. I was entirely intent in here on finding the memories that we have in common. I didn't want to write a memoir, what I wanted more to do was to take a little bit of my, a little bit of yeast from my memory and put it in the bread dough of other people's memories so that what they would do when they read this book is go, yeah, I hadn't thought about that in years, of course, you know, that was the way it was, it was like, yeah, I mean, Everybody says, you know, uh, JFK being shot was the the biggest event for the baby boom. No, actually it wasn't. It was the amazing emotional reaction of the greatest generation to JFK being shot. That's what really, like, blew our minds. Here's this generation that never never talked about combat, never talked about anything. We're like, you know, the, the stoic, silent type. And all of a sudden, they just go to pieces when, when, when JFK was shot. We're young. We're going, yeah, well, that, that's really terrible. We really like the guy, and that's that's just awful, you know. And, and, but, you know, but he's, like, old guy. You know, he's in his 40s, you know. So, you know, we're going, you know, and old people die, you know. So, yeah, you know, it, it didn't, but to, to see our parents and our teachers in tears about this and then to realize... What was JFK for them? For us, he was president of the United States. Kind of a cool president, kind of a hip president, you know, as presidents go, you know, uh, hip for being in his 40s. But to our parents, he was this beau ideal. He and Jackie, he he was our parents except richer. Better looking, more articulate, more funny, more able to reach out and sort of touch people. He was our parents' ideal of perfection, and then this was just suddenly destroyed for no reason, you know. And that's what impressed us. So I was trying to get at, I mean, that's just like one example. I was trying to get at how we really were back then as opposed to how... You know, the the, the sort of grease or or, or, or other sort of easy jersey boys or easy nostalgia about the era.
0: When you talk about uh, the baby boom having answers and solutions to everything, I mean, can you talk more to that point? I mean,
1: well, I think it is interesting. I mean, many generations have had too many problems. We were the first generation to have too many answers. You know, and as a result, we tend to when we when we confront a problem, we confront a big problem in our life. We turn our backs on it, you know, because there's a website for that. You know, there's some like best-selling book. There's some some celebrity on TV who's been through the same thing. I mean, there's a, or we can eliminate gluten from our diet. You know, I mean, we 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 don't tend to face up to problems, and you know. That's not always such a bad thing because there are an awful lot of problems in life that there is no real facing up to, you know. I, I had a professor in college who said to me once, he said, you know, all your life you're going to be hearing you can't run away from your problems. And he said about nine times out of ten that's wrong. You can run away from your problems. I mean, you know, you got a bad marriage, run away. You know, you got bad parents, run away. You know, you got a bad job, quit it, you know. And the, the, the other thing about that, too, is that, that, that um, um, you know, when, when we, we, we look at these wealth of answers that, that we have available to us, you know, I, I always think that the triathlon is the perfect example of a baby boom invention. A baby boom invented that during the 70s. You know, by the middle of the 70s, we realized that we couldn't run away from our problems, but if we added cycling and swimming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I um, wanna just read briefly a very quick quote from your book Um, so you'll know how funny this book is. Perhaps there were as many troubled, and maybe because I have an adolescent son, adolescents than there are now, but young people are sensitive to fashion trends and being troubled wasn't in style. Girls weighed 90 pounds and barfed after eating a whole half gallon of ice cream. Boys drove cars into phone poles at 70 miles an hour. But anorexia, bulimia, and teenage suicide weren't unheard of. So I just was wondering if we were happier before we started pathologizing everything.
1: Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, we, we, we probably were. I mean, I was thinking about, like, you know, growing up, you know, and, like, uh, we didn't have learning disabilities. Uh, 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 we, we didn't have childhood obesity. We didn't have gluten intolerance, you know. We, we were just uh, not doing very well in school and were a little husky and farted a lot. You know? <laughs> it was a simpler world, you know, and there is something to be said for that, you know, for for. For denying ourselves that comfort of turning everything into a disease. But uh, but then, you know, it, this is not a book about preaching. I, I, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind or convince anybody about things. Just like this is for the first time in my life, I've been, mostly been a political writer. And mostly I've been doing political satire. And I went to do political satire about the baby boom's politics, and I realized we don't have any politics. We love to yell at each other but really don't have any any politics, and, and, and the way I, I'll prove that to you is we've had three baby boom presidents so far, right? And with Hillary waiting in the wings, you know, we may, may well get four. So I mean you map Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, you map these guys out politically, you have to go to Pyongyang to find somebody who is more politically different from them as they are from each other. And yet each in his way is a perfect example of the baby boom. So then when you look down in Washington, you think, oh, America's politically deadlocked. No, it's not. It's just a baby. They're just baby boomers because that's who dominates Congress. And they love to yell at each other. You know? And does it really mean anything? No, it really doesn't.
0: Um, Let's talk about you just as a humorist, satirist. And just um, I've wondered about sort of being funny and being taken seriously. And you have points and stats and all those things, but you've also been an editor of the National Lampoon. I mean, what do you, when you see somebody that is, how do you know funny?
1: Well, look, we're all going to be taken seriously once in our life. And that will be feet first with six people carrying the box, you know. So let's you know, <laughs> let's not rush to be taken seriously. I just grew up. I grew up in a large Irish family, and there are two kinds of Irish families: they're the teasing kind and the hitting kind. And if you're lucky, you get the teasing kind. And that's all my family. That's the way they expressed all their emotions. I mean, love, hate, praise. Sorrow, disdain, whatever was entirely expressed by teasing each other. That was their only mode of communication, and so for me it was just natural. You know, I I I started out, uh, you know, uh, back in the days of the New Left and the anti-war protests and stuff. It was very earnest. I was a very earnest, very serious writer, and people kept laughing at what I was writing. Um, you know partly because i wasn 't doing it very well, and it was I was unintentionally being funny, but partly also because I just also couldn 't help myself you know and finally, I decided you know if you 're called a horse 's ass often enough, saddle up and ride out of town you know i mean you got to like go with what you got, you know, and so that 's what
0: But as when you were an editor and when you hear other people, what do you, I mean, what do you feel is, I mean, how do you know when something is funny? Oh,
1: you don't know when something's funny. Something is funny at a visceral level. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you cannot... It, jokes are like love you know the more you explain like the more it turns into 50 shades of gray you know and it just doesn't you know it really just doesn't bear explanation you know and it's just it just strikes you it's the incongruity of the thing usually but but it's, but you, you never know when it is going to be i mean the funniest thing that has happened to me lately uh, i'm not a great one for cute things my kid said but okay i got a 16 year old daughter who would just die of embarrassment if she knew I were recounting this right now, okay? So she gets caught for the first time, you know, uh, not quite telling the truth. She's, you know, her girlfriend says we're staying, my, you know, my parents were staying over at my house, and my daughter tells her parents they're staying over at our house, and they're staying over at somebody else's house, and boys are there, and, and you know. And in the morning, the, the mother at the third house that they're neither of them are supposed to be staying at Discovers that there had been some beer in the refrigerator, you know, and there had been some teenage boys in the kitchen and you can imagine the beer had vanished you know so my daughter gets to talking to, which of course dad that I am, I let my wife do uh, <laughs> it had nothing to do with this and uh, my at the end of it my, my wife said, "Now were you were you drinking beer and my daughter says. Mom, you know I'm gluten intolerant. <laughs> and my wife said she has everything she could do to keep a straight face. She said, she said, I think of all my years of teenage sneaking around and drinking beer, and I never for a moment did I come up with anything halfway as smart as that. She said, so I'm not necessarily confident about our daughter's behavior, but I am reassured about her intelligence. <laughs> Mom, you know I'm gluten
0: So, um, we are going to have, if there are questions, we're going to take three questions from the audience, and I'm going to give my microphone over to whomever, and I will choose those, and PJ will answer them.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I've told you everything I know, but if you've got any questions, I'll make up some other stuff, so. In your guide to bachelors, you mentioned... You suggested having a, a can of um, pledge to spray so that it would seem as if you've dusted. I wonder if being a married person has changed your sensibility, if you would revise the bachelor's guide or if it stands as it yes, is. Yes. No, I, I, I did write this thing called the, 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 the bachelor's home companion where I had a number of handy t- tips. Another one was to... Uh, if you had a cat, was to spray end dust on the cat and let the cat run around under the beds and <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and to just sort of spray pledge around as a kind of room deodorizer uh, 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 that, so that girls would think you'd cleaned up, you know. Uh, I basically still behave by by these principles (laughs) and and as a result get in a lot lot of trouble about it. Uh, it uh, My wife says, you know, the fundamental difference, if there is a difference between the genders, between women and men, it's that a man, everything in a man's apartment or his office or his, you know, whatever his space is, will be neatly stacked and orderly and the floor will be sticky, you know? And that's one thing that no woman can stand is a sticky floor. Ma'am, yes, hold on, we've got the microphone, it's coming to you. Could you speak a little bit more about um, Baby Boomer's feelings about the death of JFK? I was a freshman, a sophomore in uh, college, and of course I remember where I was and i felt enormously sad well you uh, see but you were a little bit more of a grown up than, than most uh, of the baby boom. well so, I, I was born december 31st 1945 so technically yeah, so just, i missed yeah, it yeah yeah i mean you but, just yeah, well, we'll, we'll give you a pass thank <laughs> you to <know, laughs> so, so an inclusive generation so you, yeah. so you would think that it was just later on that i'm uh, thinking about more how High school freshmen and sophomores. I was a junior at the time, so I was sort of on the cusp of adult sensibility. I mean, I was devastated by it, but I was also enough, still enough of a kid to be amazed at adult devastation. You know, and and, and I remember, like I just, you know, like I, our English teacher just went to pieces. You know, and, and he began reciting that poem about about what was it Edward Corey. You know, he was rich and, you know, and, 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 and educated and, and so on. And, and, and then he realized in the middle of that poem, that the point of the poem, Edward Crowe Ransom poem, is that, that Edward Corey goes home and shoots himself, which is exactly what didn't happen at JFK. But, I mean, he was so pulled apart by this. And we'd never seen adults fall, fall apart. You know, so that, you know, that was, uh, you know, it wasn't that we didn't feel it ourselves, but the younger we were, the younger in the baby boom were, the more we were amazed by that. Sir? Oh, uh, Mr. O'Rourke, you're in the New York Times today. Uh, I am. What did I do? This is a review of... Uh, <laughs> Let me see. Uh, Dan Jenkins' book, and here's the part that applies to you. It says, Mr. Jenkins is among those writers, P.J. O'Rourke is another, who combine an anarchic prose style and a sometimes colorful personal life with conservative politics. What is the colorful personal life, and do you think it's Yeah, different? I'd like to know. I've got to call up that reviewer and find out what it is that's colorful about my do personal life. Do you think life. it detracts from your seriousness as a writer or you don't care i don't care <laughs> but i would like to be have some of that colorful personal life you know i'm, I'm like 66 and i live in new hampshire you know my, <laughs> my idea of a colorful personal life is when the cable tv is working <laughs> thank
0: you thank you thank so, you. Thank so all Michael. of you
1: for uh, um right.
0: pj o'rourke will be signing over at the bookstore back here um We'd love to see you over there. And there's a 20% discount on the book, I think. Um, Thank you all for being here. I hope you'll be here next week. We'll have Sam Lipsight on Wednesday at noon. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.